This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Nerd Cred. The Chelyabinsk Meteor. RPG Lawbreaking. And the Comics Code Authority. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The back chat from literary professors and the zing of ray guns tells us that the genre hut must be open for business. And our first order of business, as with all talks about genre, is to uh, argue fiercely about exactly how big the hut is. Uh, there has been a great deal of foo back and forth over the internet about various sorts of people who are claiming nerd credentials. A concept that stuns and baffles uh, the older of us nerds. Uh, Robin, do you have a response to the question of the fake nerd? Yes. Speaking of older nerds, the idea, first of all, that you would that being a nerd would not only be a term that you would be proud of, but that you would fight for possession of, is uh, quite crazy to uh, this uh, Walter Brennan-like observer. I remember back when Gary Gygax would go into paroxysms of dudgeon at the mere thought that. Nerds or geeks existed, uh, let alone that D&D players were predominantly nerds and geeks. And now we've done a, a full 180 on that, where people are uh, have not only claimed the subculture, but are busy uh, doing what subcultures do, which is uh, building a corral to keep other people out. And so I think the interesting way to look at this is to look at it as the absolutely standard behavior of any subculture. And in the uh, dawn of humanity, as best as we can tell at this moment, uh, there weren't subcultures, there were just cultures. You had your group of people, and you had to defend them yourself against the uh, people on the other side of the hill when you weren't trading with them. Uh, and now we have a growing globalized culture, but that globalized culture has allowed us to identify as being parts of a subgroup and then subgroups within subgroups. And so I think the core of this question, first of all, is, is there such thing as a fake nerd goes to the question of what is a nerd? Are you a geek because you have certain definable pop culture tastes that you like comic books and animation and giant robots and role-playing games and hobbits and dwarves and what have you? Or are you a nerd because you are a social outcast. <laughs> because you are incapable of understanding that people like might like all those things while also being able to shower regularly. Right. And well it used to be that those two things were closely identified, but the triumph of the geek culture over the last uh, twenty years or so has been first of all the weird skills that nerds used to cultivate uh, now uh, cause you to be cultivated in turn by venture, venture capitalists if, if you're the right <laughs> level of nerd the, you know the, the geeks have inherited the earth if you if you if you built your character correctly all right and so uh, uh, perhaps uh, you know if you want to take an evolutionary biology perspective of it you know you've suddenly you've increased your your breeding potential um, and and with that the subculture of nerds has become mass culture, right? The the Avengers is one of the biggest movies of last year. And if you go down the list of all the major movies, they're all geek culture stuff. There's not only, you know, I remember the days when, you know, you were lucky if there was one kind of geeky TV show. And now their entire channel is devoted to geeky TV shows. And some of the geeky TV shows like Game of Thrones and uh, True Blood and and so forth have uh, Walking Dead, of course, they have a broader cultural resonance where they're they're big hits. And so your uh, various social strata in, let's face it, we're talking about high school here, uh, who, uh, you know, in, in days gone past would not be all interested necessarily in that material are suddenly all interested in that material. So if you think of nerdism as a personality profile as a layer in the social hierarchy, you're going to feel threatened 
if suddenly everybody is moving in on your territory and wants to play Settlers of Catan with you. Uh, John Hodgman on a recent podcast, and I wish I could remember whether it was uh, WTF with Mark Marin or The Nerdist, talked about his teenage D&D group as being a center of calm against outside social pressure, and most specifically the social pressure of having to interact with girls who at the time were deeply confusing to him and his friends. And I think there's a, you know, there's a huge gender aspect to the question of who is a fake nerd, because when you see this being discussed online, it quite often now it is about attractive young women who are showing up at gaming conventions or gaming events, uh, sometimes taking part in, in cosplay events or sometimes just being attractive young women at uh, a game convention and or comic convention or comic convention or whatever, you know, genre area you want to talk about. And I think that causes some unease among the portion of the demographic that would like geekdom to be a way of escaping the pressures of being around girls who they haven't quite figured out yet. And I think another part of it is that there's sort of a category error going on and you know like everything if you just burn everything to the ground and start over with aristotle you get pretty close to what is is happening and i think that people are confusing the notion of someone having not being a nerd with someone getting you know quote unquote unearned nerd status because again if you go back to high school where all of these uh, uh behaviors are set uh, and annealed um you get the notion that uh, attractive women attractive girls are automatically, you know, high up in the social order because they are, you know, unattainable, uh, magical, good-smelling creatures. And when you are in a, in a nerdery uh, environment, a game convention or a comic convention, you know how you pay your dues and earn your way up the nerd ladder. And it's by, you know, arguing about whether the Incredible Hulk should be gray or green, or it's uh, memorizing all the colors of kryptonite, or it's knowing all of the... Um, uh, uh, rules for attacks of opportunity or whatever it happens to be. And so you have established in competition red in tooth and die 20, uh, your nerd cred. And all of a sudden an attractive girl appears who, as far as you can tell, has done none of those things. She certainly wasn't doing them around you. And you feel like she's jumping rank. It's not even that she's so much a fake nerd qua, because I think that, you know, push to the wall, people will say, well, she's at a comic book convention. You know, how, how cool can she possibly be? But the sense is that she's sort of jumped the line there and has used the power of being an attractive girl to get ahead of you in the great race for uh, for nerd cred. And I, I think that there's sort of a category error that rather than say she's cheating, uh, which is ungentlemanly, uh, they say she's not a real nerd, which is just ridiculous. And obviously uh, our high school experiences conditioned us out of any great worry about being ridiculous and so therefore uh the um uh, the the mistake sort of uh propagates itself now obviously to people like you and myself who have uh, uh <laughs> sort of aged out of that the demographic in which uh 20 year olds dressed as bad girl are an immediate and pressing concern we can sort of take a broader view of this and say, hey, anyone showing up at, at Gen Con is welcome to show up at Gen Con as long as they, you know, stop by the Pell Grain stand. But I, I think that for a lot of people, there are sort of a combination of not just your, your concept of the sort of um, uh, boundary cues, but also ranking cues that are being upset. Right. And when you talk about ranking, I think that goes to the way in which men and women, whether, you know, innately or culturally, that's an argument we can't resolve and, and won't have another day. It certainly shouldn't. It certainly shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> men tend to have more of a systematizing impulse, which leads you to memorize all the different kinds of green lanterns or no issue numbers of comic books or, uh, you know, know all the episodes in which Kirk didn't violate the prime directive because that's a smaller number. Um, versus uh, uh, women have a different way uh, in general of approaching this material and that they have different ways of enjoying it, including cosplay or, or whatever it is, that there are slight uh, differences in the way uh, people approach their nerddom, which if you are insecure about it, you can blow up into a big thing rather than looking at it as, hey, wait a minute, everybody around here has a whole different range of tastes. This guy over here really likes uh, giant robots. Uh, she uh, seems, uh, you know, really interested in Doctor Who. We're just a collection of people who enjoy all these different 
overlapping things, why not enjoy the fact that our community is getting larger and more inclusive and that we can feel uh, less weird about enjoying the stuff that we enjoy? I used to think that this was entirely a question of young men being insecure around women and finding an excuse to say that in a way that doesn't cop to what's going on. Because, of course, there's something quite horrifying <laughs> if suddenly you do have access to girls that you find really attractive, but you're still unable to make any sort of connection to them, right? That's even more hurtful to you than going, oh, well, they wouldn't be interested in what I'm interested in. Well, now they are interested in what you're interested in. They're just still not interested in you. Yeah, it, it stopped being Jack Kirby's fault. Now it's your fault. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, there was a discussion where a couple of uh, young women were complaining that nerd girls were not real nerd girls, that they were real nerds, but these these other women weren't uh, because they were just adopting the outward fashions of nerddom, whether that would be glasses or, you know, I suppose. But, you know, why would anyone pretend to be interested in Settlers of Catan or, or anime? You know, people, uh, when you flip it and think from the other point of view, I mean, subcultures are always very wary about uh, policing who's in the culture and who isn't. And they're always really eager to label other people as posers as an attempt to build their own status or shield them from the perceived higher status of, you know, whoever the interloper is. But if you stop and think about it for a second, it's like, who is going to go to all of the trouble to pretend to be interested in hobbies that they're not interested? What possible aim would they have for that? I guess the accusation is, well, you know, like it's fashionable now. And then, you know, three years from now, they'll be on to other things. Well, so will you, <laughs> you know, this is entertainment. It's all fashion. And so, uh, you know, I think in order to understand it, you really have to look at it in terms of, you know, a, a social dynamic. And basically, like many sets of complaints about other people, it's insecurity projected outwards, that instead of admit to the fact that you feel uncomfortable with the, this other person who seems to be a little more together than you are, and is maybe you know, 18 months ahead in figuring out social relationships or, you know, is aware of her location in physical space when she's talking to other people or whatever. It's, uh, you know, I would hope that people sort of overcome that hard-wired impulse to build fences and instead look to ways to build bridges. And, you know, you're being threatened by this other person is, is neither helping you nor them, but striking up a conversation, uh, I bet you will find that that person that you are threatened by uh, is, in fact, nerdier than you think, because everybody's a nerd today. And I don't know, you know, if people still want to define an entertainment subculture to protect themselves from other people, they're going to have to find something else other than Batman or uh, the Alien trilogy. Well, I mean, obviously, within our broader nerd world, there are people who have, you know, found those something else's. And, the, you know, I'm sure that if you go to a Doctor Who convention, uh, there are people who are, you know, consider anyone who came on with Tom Baker to be a poser and a, and a fake Doctor Who fan. And that if you weren't, you know, there from day one with um, uh, Pertwee and whoever the guy was before Pertwee, because I'm obviously a fake Doctor Who fan, um, then you don't really count. And then there's also going to be people who... Uh, are no doubt uh, staunchly uh, defenders just of, you know, one of the current doctors who are like big uh, tenant fans but hate Matt Smith fans with a passion, the way that we used to bag on um, uh, the fans of the uh, the doctor that came after Tom Baker, whose name escapes me because we bagged on the fans so much. Right, and the, the great example of that to look at is actually not about genre at all, but about music. If you read the uh, Nick Hornby's novel High Fidelity, or you see the, the movie with John Cusack, that is all about discovering that your taste does not make you a better person. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, perhaps being obsessed with your taste and patrolling the boundaries around your taste and uh, uh, probably uh, makes you a worse person or indicates that you have other issues that you are not dealing with. So that if you're uh, one of these people who's really concerned about erecting boundaries to keep other people out, my question is just, why is it worth your while to be that person? And for those of us who are bemused by that, I think you just have to, have to sort of see yet forgive this impulse, because at its core, it is, uh, however vexing, very human. Yeah, I, I think that as much as we would like to say that we can solve perennial human condition problems here on the podcast, it probably takes, I would say, two or three different segments before we can actually do that. 
So, from the picture of Charles Fort on the wall to the alien big cat glaring at us through the window, we know that we've now stepped into the mysterious confines of the Elliptony Hut. Elliptony, as you will call, is the study of all things uh, strange, conspiratorial, and weird. It is a catchphrase invented by uh, Ken to describe... Uh, all of those things and uh, put them together into a lovely portmanteau. Uh, this was inspired by someone who comes up in this story, but uh, before we get to that, uh, we're looking at a tale in the news, and that is the fall of the Chelyabinsk meteor on February 15th. Uh, we all saw, I assume, the spectacular YouTube footage taken from various dashboard cams and were made all the more familiar with the separate yet also fascinating Russian dashboard cam phenomenon. Uh, and uh, Vladimir Zhirinovsky-Ken, the uh, man who helped you coin the term elliptony, as Bill Higgins, uh, commenter on the Ken and Robin TalkAboutStuff.com site, points out, has weighed in on the hidden reality behind this meteor strike. Yes, he has argued um, uh, in uh, classic uh, Zhirinovskyan form uh, that the meteor was a secret uh, U.S. weapons test um, and there have been a number of uh, 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 American conspiratologists, or not conspiratologists, cons conspiracists, who have uh, jumped to a similar conclusion, believing that it is, um, in what, I, what I think is sort of the, the, the finest version of this, that it is a test of uh, kinetic uh, orbital missiles, or kinetic orbital uh, weapons, which are basically you drop a crowbar from orbit and then it uh, destroys anything it hits is uh, the, the sort of the, the broader theory that are apparently have been nicknamed God's Rods at the very least by the conspiracy theorists. And the notion being that a secret uh, evangelical cabal within the U.S. Air Force Academy at Colorado Springs has uh, done this in, a, uh, in an attempt to bring about or herald the coming uh, uh, revelation of St. John and the Apocalypse. So it's a beautiful blend of Zhirinovskian uh, nationalist paranoia with various conspiracists' uh, sort of uh, delightful uh, politico-religious uh, paranoia here in America. So it's really sort of a hands-across-the-sea uh, detente of a conspiracy theory. And then, of course, there are many, many other ones that exciting people have come up with from the perfectly uh, normal, this is the first gun of an alien invasion, down to a really terrific one that apparently uh, someone has, has noticed that the events in Chelyabinsk eerily parallel uh, the uh, video game XCOM Enemy Unknown, in which a meteor uh, opens up an alien invasion. And rather than say that the XCOM guys had advanced warning of the alien invasion, what they say is that this demonstrates that we are inside the Matrix, and that therefore um, uh, the game is echoing itself within a game within a game in a really great sort of a Grant Morrisonian uh, conspiracy theory that I, I think maybe. You know, I, I'm not sure that it's ever going to replace the Rosicrucians in my heart, but it's certainly it's a it's a glorious attempt to start finding parallels uh, between video games and real life, and using them to argue that we're inside a larger video game. I think that's just a real that's a real advance for the field. The the, the whole litany of weirdness that you just unfurled there seems to indicate like a hyper acceleration of conspiracy theory, right? Because it's been less than two weeks, and already these incredibly elaborate weirdo mythologies have arisen, you know, back in the old days of uh, mimeograph machines that would have uh, taken years to accomplish. Yeah, there's a there's a great argument that um, William Gibson made, I think, that talks about how punk was the last real organic social movement, that everything after punk happened within the realm of uh, instantaneous electronic transmission of uh, not just enthusiasm, but of commentary on your enthusiasm. And so that something it, you know, it, it opens up as, as a, as a, you know, a video in Vietnam or, or Korea or wherever. And then literally a billion people around the world can see it at once. There can't be a slow filtering out of zines and bands going and playing in other cities. I mean, if you are, you know, uh, into, you know, whatever the new sound is in London, you can be into that new sound in Savannah, Georgia without ever having had, you know, the, the pioneers of, um, uh, dubstep to electric boogaloo come to savannah georgia to play a concert because you can see all their stuff on youtube and you can download all their music off of amazon and you can you know go nuts with it right there in savannah georgia and you can be part of a scene that in you know the old days of mimeograph machines and, and punk rock 
it had sort of spread like a missionary style from city to city, or at the very least by reading things and then sending away and ordering records and, and like that, being part of uh, this sort of community of, of belief, uh, like we were talking about in the previous segment. It's, it's a lower barrier to entry now, and therefore the etiology of these things spread so much faster than, than we thought they had. And what this allows us to do now is to watch in real time as various competing mythologies that attempt to explain the celestial event rise up and then battle each other for supremacy. And after a while, we will see which ones become greatest hits, you know, enter the uh, general framework of uh, conspiracy theories that attract a body of uh, believers and which ones sort of uh, peter out. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, do you think that there's a particular one that is more mythically resonant and therefore more likely to be uh, the biggest explanation a year from now? Well, I think that what, what we see with, um, with the, the, the three that I talked about or the four that I talked about is that they were all slotted immediately, that the Chelyabinsk meteor does not sort of spark a new conspiracy theory. What happens is it's slotted into existing conspiracy theories. Vladimir Zhirinovsky with his notion of uh, secret lepton weapons competition between the United States and uh, Russia, uh, the uh, guys on uh, Rents.com and other uh, sort of uh, professionally paranoid American sites with their worries about uh, Christian takeover of the U.S. military and the U U.S. military industrial complex uh, launching things into space that we don't know about, or, you know, the good old standard alien invaders, or this uh, notion that we're all inside a video game, which is the newest, I think, of all of these conspiracy theories, but it came out of, I think, a fairly serious philosophical discussion that sort of blended uh, epistemology and game theory, and that I, I'm pretty sure that those initial discussions were happening, you know, a decade ago. So none of these are really, like, great new, you know, uh, literally, you know, meteors out of nowhere. What what it is is the meteor shows up, and just like astronomers, they sort of, you know, fold it into their pre-existing cosmology. And another one of the great things about the way that the world is is that none of this uh, stuff ever really gets outcompeted. Certainly some things become, uh, you know, uh, best-selling paperback books, and some things just languish on a, on a website somewhere. But I, I think that right now, if I had to, you know, pick one that was a comer, I would suggest that the um, the sort of uh, either the nervousness about the Christian takeover of the U.S. military or the video game one is the is the one that that looks like it's got legs for the next decade or so because both of those I think are uh, are talking to uh, things that uh, the majority of uh, of English speaking people around the world uh, will. Will will at least pay attention to if even if they don't obviously believe it. And to what extent do you think that there is uh, a trolling element to people who are not conspiracy believers but are looking to shape these memes and see who falls for it? As would you describe everyone promulgating these conspiracy theories as equally sincere, or are there some cats among the pigeons? I am sure that just mathematically there have to be cats among the pigeons, and given that so many of these memes. Uh, propagate on places like Reddit, where uh, saying nonsense as a means of social um, uh, uh, advancement is is part of the it's part of the the, the game, the chest beating rituals uh, on those sites. That there have to be people who are being rewarded uh, socially uh, for their ability to sort of spin an attractive and interesting conspiracy theory. And I'm sure that there are also people who I mean, if there are people who enjoy posting. Um, uh, you know, arguments on opposite-leaning political blogs, so there have to be people who enjoy uh, trolling conspiracy sites because the, the reward would be so much greater. So as a less seasoned elliptonist than yourself, it certainly strikes me that the one that is most tongue-in-cheek, the one that most resembles a flying spaghetti monster kind of goof, is the we-are-in-the-matrix mm -hmm. argument. Um, do you sense a different quality to that than to the to the others or to the people who seem to sincerely uh, believe them? There are, there are, there are definitely true believers of the matrix argument. Uh, David, uh, Ike, uh, the, uh, reptoid guy, uh, has at some point right around nine 11, I think decided that we were all in the matrix and thought that that was a crucially important thing to tell everyone about. And there are plenty of, uh, straight faced believers of his stripe that have the sort of, uh, uh matrix notion 
And it, and then that ties into a lot of the sort of, uh, I don't want to say neurological, but certainly the behavioral things, uh, like Capgras syndrome, where you believe that everyone around you is an actor or everyone around you is a robot. And, and these are sort of standard things that show up in the, in the psychiatric and, uh, social, uh, literature going back to the turn of the last century. Uh, you know, 1900 people are talking about these things where they believe that everyone involved is in a complex game, uh, except themselves. And so the notion that, uh, we're all in the matrix, I think is, is as, as much a factor of having the matrix be a giantly successful movie. And, uh, to a lesser extent, obviously the fact that we are, uh, living a great deal of our sort of public lives, at least online, as opposed to in, in, uh, in the flesh, that those two things are, are driving it. And that, Although you and I will look at it and say, well, this is the one that's obviously bogus. The, the thing that philosophers have been sort of arguing, the ones who don't have, um, uh, the, 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 the cop out of, of, of faith that, uh, that people like me do, uh, that say that there is, you know, since we can empirically demonstrate that you can create a, a neural network, uh, either now or within the next foreseeable future that will be as complex as the human brain, and since all of everything that we perceive happens inside our brain, therefore there is no way to argue a priori that we're not all perceiving something that is inside a neural network that was constructed by us in a different dimension, or you know the reptoids, or whoever it happens to be that built uh, the Matrix, in, or you know uh, the you know the bad guys who hate Morpheus. And in this case, that as colorful, um, although in some cases cribbed from pop culture, as these theories are, that this is a we often think of conspiracy theories as taking boring reality and then adding a level of the fantastic to it. But here, to me, that the reality that rocks can fall from space uh, <laughs> is, is in itself, I think, more awe-inspiring and amazing than any of these uh, theories, particularly the fact that it doesn't pertain in this example, but the fact that there are meteorites that uh, geologists have recovered that are believed to have come from the moon or from Mars, that little bits of rock from one planet are, are shed like so much exfoliated skin and sometimes make their way to other planets is an even more astounding story uh, than any of uh, in anything that you could make up and, and turn into a story of human agency. Although I guess that is one of the most primal impulses at all of all is to look at things in nature and to explain give them a theory of mind is to give them a, a purpose and, a, and an agenda behind them. But the reality of meteorites or just the reality of, of watching the, the videos of those things is so much more jaw dropping than the idea that we're uh, all in a computer program somewhere. Yeah. And of course uh, the delightful thing about meteorites specifically is that it was one of the earliest uh, sort of, Conspiracy theories, probably tongue-in-cheek, speaking of our conspiracy trolls, uh, in American history, in that there was a number of uh, meteorites uh, that fell in the United States in the early 19th century, and Thomas Jefferson famously said, I would rather believe that two Yankee professors would lie than that stones are falling out of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the notion that uh, Thomas Jefferson was onto something and that meteorites are all a big scam is one that I think maybe should have a little more currency, um, that, uh, that we're all being deceived. But like you said, I mean, the point of a conspiracy theory is not necessarily to make things more exciting. The point to a conspiracy theory is to have an identifiable human actor who is causing whatever it is. And uh, the notion of uh, something like uh, the Mayan apocalypse, therefore, which is a... Uh, a, a, a even, you know, they posit a non-human activity is something that the, the narrative is not so much the apocalypse as, you know, what can, who, who should we listen to to get away from the apocalypse and how can we, you know, behave better so that the Mayan apocalypse won't be mean to us. I mean, no one, no one writes books about the Mayan apocalypse and says, um, this has no relevance to our uh, political or social or religious beliefs. It's just going to happen, yes. and it sucks to be you. In the same way that you would write a book about meteor impacts. I mean, no one, uh, no scientist writes a book about meteor impacts and suggests that if we all just recycle our cans, meteors won't fall, uh, or whatever, right? And uh, the whole idea now that we are going to try and make the movie Armageddon come true because we are more and more aware of the potential uh, extinction event level uh results from a, a head-on 
hit from a big meteor asteroid uh, is also an interesting connection between uh, you know pop culture and uh, reality. Although, as I understand it, the odds of shooting down a meteor are, are incredibly slim. Well, I mean, the the odds of shooting down a meteor, given our current space uh, capacity, are <laughs> so slim as to be pretty much impossible. Uh, but it should not be too terribly hard to develop a outer space capacity that at the very least is able to provide warning of Tunguska-level impacts and could possibly, uh, you know, uh, if you if you get the meteor early enough with an X-ray laser, you can make it tumble in its orbit. You can cause it to jet, um, uh, uh, to, to outgas or, or whatever else, and that, in if you get it uh, early enough, that's how, you know, celestial mechanics works, it, it will miss the Earth. And the point is finding it first and then having, you know, a sufficiently... Uh, a sufficiently inexpensive Earth-to-orbit launch or orbital manufacturing capacity that you can basically expend the kilojoules to knock meteors out of the path when you have to. The part where you fly Bruce Willis and a team of uh, cranky misfits to the asteroid with a nuclear weapon is probably not the best plan in the world because then you're chasing a meteor with a chemical impulse as opposed to with a beam of light. Uh, well, now that we've uh, laid plans for a new military-industrial complex, we'll replace our current one, uh, and probably to much better effect, one would, one would hope, even just spending all that money on something other than uh, a war with people and spending on a war with asteroids might be a good thing in my book. I, I think we've uh, covered the elliptonic potential of the Chelyabinsk meteor. once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. MKS asks Ken and Robin, why do so many American RPGs have to do with breaking the law? Um, Robin, I was not aware that it was only American RPGs that had to do with breaking the law. Am I unaware of a thriving Canadian uh, role-playing game scene in which everyone is uh, perfectly willing to listen to the nice Mounties and not break into places and steal other people's stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that, first of all, that I buy the premise just because there are so few native RPGs uh, from non-American sources that you can really generalize about that. But I think what this question gets to is certainly a difference in approach to even to the same existing games that you will see from people, for example, from the UK or the Commonwealth versus American players. And first of all, another bit of that premise that I would question is whether the majority of role-playing games, period, are about breaking the law because many of them are about doing heroic things in a lawless environment uh, in which, you know, D&D is, is the big example. And to, uh, you know, once again borrow something that Jonathan Tweet always says, D&D uh, is much more about the American West than it is about living in a medieval society, that it uh, posits a sort of a frontier land where... Uh, combat-ready individuals go out and do battle without really even having to deal much with the structures of civilization and the very hierarchical, controlled social structure of uh, medieval society, which included, you know, this heavy influence of the church, for example, which never appears in fantasy role-playing settings, that I think there is a power fantasy uh, that drives a lot of role-playing and the idea of you know, being free and being able to do whatever you want, not having to take guff off nobody, that is more accentuated when you uh, have Americans playing or Americans designing the games than it is, for example, from people uh, in the UK. And so, for example, over the years, playtesting various games, I've gotten feedback from UK players who want sort of more of a tough slog, as it were, uh, versus... Uh, Americans who are willing to admit to themselves that the reason that they play role-playing games is to feel powerful and have fun. Yeah, I think that that's that that's certainly you know a part of it. I mean, I'm uh, I'm fond of riffing off Jonathan's comment that uh, the American game about uh, well-armed strangers wandering around uh, uh, killing things is the American West, and the European game 
of well-armed strangers wandering around killing things is the Thirty Years' War, which is the difference between D&D and Warhammer. But the notion that um, European gamers are less into power fantasy, or that uh, Commonwealth gamers are less into power fantasy, strikes me as a little bit off, given, you know, the huge success of all the D&D clones in Europe. I mean, you know, uh, the Black Eye in Germany, uh, the Schwarze Auge, uh, uh, the Dungeons and Dragons clones. There's two of them in Sweden that I know of. Obviously, a lot of the the French games, I mean, the original French Nephilim was a much bigger power fantasy than uh, the American Nephilim was. So I, I think that, you know, I would, I would certainly agree that Americans are uh, possibly more conditioned to believe that absolute uh, player freedom is a, a mot juste, is, is the way to go, and therefore that that in, empowers our power fantasy more than it empowers those uh, players who feel like they need to have social constraints forced on them by the setting. But I'm not sure that you can say Americans are power fantasy players and Commonwealth players are all, um, uh, you know, dutifully, you know, killing centipedes until they're told by, you know, the... Uh, Lord Chamberlain that they can raise to second level. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's a massive generalization. Um, it's one that I've seen reflected a little bit in playtesting over the years. Um, and I think it is more a question not of what most people want from gaming as to what they're prepared to admit that they want from gaming. But there are big cultural differences, for example, between Warhammer and D&D, where uh, Warhammer does uh, posit a society that is uh, much more constrained and that, you know, that you start out as a rat catcher, some horrible, miserable thing. And that part of the joke is how freaking horrible life is in the Warhammer universe and how you can just sort of, you know, at best, eke your way to a, a victory before you're horribly killed by a chaos dwarf. And then you look on the chart to see where your head has been pulped uh, versus the increasing over the years move toward uh outright power fantasy in D&D. So there's there's something to it, but I think that it can be wildly overgeneralized and, and overanalyzed. And, and again, um, obviously, uh, the, the guys that did uh, GURPS uh, Goblins, which was based on an original New Zealand game, um, Malcolm Dale and Claude Thomas is who it is. Um, they were New Zealanders, and so therefore they, uh, I, I think, sort of begin with both a, um, uh, a more ironic view of, of British society, which is what goblins and GURPS goblins are about, but also a, a, a more, a, maybe a greater willingness to accept that their, that their characters are perennially at the bottom of it, and that the notion of rising to become Prince of Chicago, like a proper vampire has to, is not part of the game, that the game is actually about reveling in the sort of uh, muck and uh, larceny that goes on uh, below uh, the, the, the cravat-wearing classes. Right. And I guess another way to, to come at this question is just to say, well, how many role-playing games aren't about either living freely in an essentially lawless environment or about breaking the law within structure that impo attempts to impose a law on you and fails, which would be, for example, cyberpunk. So, you know, what is there out there in which you are uh, proceeding toward peace, order, and good government? I don't think there's a a huge number of examples, right? In Traveler, you are essentially free because you're traveling in a spaceship from one planet to another and are uh, more or less beyond the jurisdiction of the uh, interstellar cops. In, in Ash and Stars, it makes the question of how lawful are you going to choose to be part of the setting and part of the core choices that you're making in that game. You play freelance police officers in a uh, section of space that no longer has really any other functional law. So it is a lawless environment. You are imposing law on it in this case. So that sort of flips it in that way, if you want to look at a game written from a Canadian perspective. But that recognizes that the players quite often want to kind of be skeevy characters. And so it gives you a sort of a stat that you that pulls and pushes against you as the, you know, the more corners you cut and the skeevier you choose to be, the harder it is for you to get more contracts in order to keep going as an interstellar cop. So that's a game that makes that tendency in role-playing uh, part of the text as opposed to being part of the subtext. But I guess if you're playing James Bond, that is a game where you are licensed to kill. 
what other lawful games are there out there? <laughs> but you're still doing an awful lot of dangerous, violent things. I, I think that the closest we get in sort of in, in broadly successful games uh, to uh, the notion of characters as law makers and law preservers is obviously champions and other standard superhero games where you're playing the, you know, if not, you know, necessarily part of the uh, law enforcement offices, if you're basing it as virtually all of them are on Silver Age comics, you're deputized or you're accepted as part of the law enforcement community in the sense that you're not hunted by the cops. You're the guys who are there to take on people in, you know, giant robots and stuff that the cops can't handle. And so you are an auxiliary or a branch of the law enforcement community, and that much of your adventures happen in power fantasy, power fantastically smacking around uh, giant apes and people in jetpacks. Uh, your mention of superheroes reminds me of a, a story of convention play gone horribly wrong that happened in the superhero genre where someone was running a game uh, where the superheroes were, uh, because they fail in the introductory section of the game, uh, were being mocked by the populace. And of course, the theory is that, that, you know, that's a stock scene, particularly from Marvel Comics, where, you know, people aren't happy to see Spider-Man, and then he proves himself at the end. Um, and so this adventure was set up with that emotional hook at the beginning. And so there are some kids mocking the superheroes, and one of the players in this particular run of this scenario goes, oh, I burn their faces off. <laughs> and, and so he's playing, you know, putatively a uh, sympathetic hero character, but because this player obviously is one of these take no guff players and just culturally expects to always be able to get away with having his player his character exhibit no impulse control whatsoever and never having a consequence for it he was uh this player apparently was quite offended when the uh gm did what he thought he was obligated to do by that event and turned the adventure into a hunt to track down this horrible villain who just burned two children to death for mocking him. <laughs> and uh, this uh, player was quite indignant. I, I think may have even like left the table midway through, which is a colossal clash of expectations that shows that that player anyway expects uh, total uh, power fantasy without any regard for uh, narrative consistency or character sympathy or, or anything like that. Well, I'm not saying that um, uh, sociopaths don't exist, and uh, certainly that may, it may be that one of the reasons so many RPGs uh, feature uh, sociopathic characters is that we know our audience. But having been around an awful lot of people who play champions and other superhero games, the uh, even the sort of, not face burning off, but even the sort of vigilante uh, Spider-Man or X-Men type, uh, classic Spider-Man, classic X-Men type, we have to hide out and can't cooperate with the law type play is less common than the more Justice League or Avengers or Fantastic Four type where, no, you have a skyscraper and you have a, a, an email address and people, you know, from the, you know, Commissioner Gordon or Chief Parker or whoever calls you up and says, uh, the mole men are attacking. If you could, you know, get down here and do something about that, that would be awesome. And it's it's much more the sort of characters as bulwarks of the law as opposed to characters as face-burning psychopaths. Yes, yeah, that anecdote is not a refutation of your point at all, but yeah. just an illustration of, of the extent to which people's expectations about uh, where the rules are that govern their characters and what consequences they can expect from those uh, leads to the creation of settings that are about breaking the law or about freedom of action in a lawless world, because then you don't, uh, you sort of sidestep that issue entirely by creating a world in which, you know, easily offended face Bernie off guy seems less uh, at, at a disjunction from the, the rest of play. But obviously that's a, an extreme crazy example, which is why it's a fun anecdote. Right. Yeah. And, and, and again, if you set the game deliberately on the fringes of civilization and you never have your characters return to anything larger than an isolated tavern, then they can burn the faces off everyone they meet, securing the knowledge that those people are probably monsters and that it's, it's therefore it's not a concern. And maybe face Bernie off guy had played in nothing but that as opposed to any other game ever. But I, I think that the, the notion that uh, the, another notion that we, that we have to look at is games where there is an internal moral code put onto the player characters, and that can be from the Paladin's uh, code of lawful annoyance to 
the the vampire codes, right? That if you're playing a vampire, there are certain uh, so- social codes that you are part of. And while on the one hand, you are a rapist murderer by definition, on the other hand, you have to obey the law because the law that applies to you is the law set down by the primogen or by the Camarilla or whoever. And that those games are just as much about law obey- law-obeying. And a lot of the games that have a, a sort of a high uh, court factor or a high intrigue factor really turn on on obeying the law and staying on the right side of the law as opposed to sort of like, hey, we're cool vampires, we're going to drive around in a Maserati and bite uh, uh, hookers-type games, right? That the, the, the vampire players would look at those guys as sociopaths just like we look at face-burning-off guys as sociopaths. Right, and those uh, are quite often either attempts to build a style of play that is more about intrigue, so it, there's an answer to the question, well, why don't I just kill him? And so that's, you know, the big law structure explains why you don't just kill this guy and why instead you have to negotiate with him. And secondly, also those structures enforce a level of player sympathy on you or try to get you to engage the issue of whether your character is sympathetic or not, because even people who are not interested per se in telling a story, if you sit down in the story that evolves whether you're interested in telling it or not, is a story about... Uh, horrible sociopaths that nobody likes, that develops sort of a sour taste uh, where your complete freedom of action uh, creates something that just feels weird and wrong and eventually it runs out of steam. And so that you uh, want to, in most cases, find a way to encourage the players to play sympathetic characters who are like the characters in some sort of story that you could possibly point to. Because in fiction, the rule is that unsympathetic characters suffer a comeuppance. Now, there are games where you can build towards that comeuppance, as you do in Fiasco or in The Dying Earth or Skullduggery, but the general rule is that even if you're playing uh, psycho vampires, you want to be the sympathetic psycho vampires. Yeah, and and another case that occurred to me um, of games that have a, a social construction that playing within is part of the game is something like uh, Legend of the Five Rings, which, of course, famously has its COD Japanese uh, society, and much of that gameplay is negotiating the social codes expected of you as a samurai, and then when that just gets too much, you go down to the uh, Shadowlands and chop up uh, uh, Oni. And that's another very strongly legalistic uh, role-playing environment, and again, done by an American designer. Well, I think we've uh, talked for a segment's worth of stuff after dismissing the premise of that question and can now move on to our next segment. And that segment is Ken's Time Machine, whereas... Longtime podcast listeners know Time Incorporated enlists Ken to go back in their time machine to change, rectify, or otherwise alter the time stream. And uh, this week we have a Ken's Time Machine by request. Uh, Tom Clare uh, asks you, Ken, to get in Time Incorporated's time machine and go back to prevent the Comics Code Authority. Now, I was sort of, when I saw this question, wondering if this is a prohibition-style question where you're being asked to alter a broad social force because, of course, the Comics Code Authority comes about as a result of an American moral panic and asking uh, America to stop having moral panics would sort of be a question of going back and preventing America. So uh, do you have any uh, strategies for dealing with the uh, institution of the Comics Code Authority? Well, one of the things about the Comics Code Authority specifically is that obviously... There were pre-existing comics codes. The, most of the big publishers, certainly DC at the time, had an internal code. Uh, other publishers had codes. And uh, these codes, in many cases, you know, went back to 1941. They predated the moral panic in question. So you're not necessarily going to you know, start uh, with the full flowering of R. Crumb uh, if you don't have the, uh, you know, in 1952, if you don't have a comics code. But the Comics Code Authority specifically comes about really as the result of a moral panic whipped up pretty much by one guy, and that guy is uh, the famous uh, Frederick Wortham, who is, uh, in addition to being a sloppy researcher, also a Marxist. So uh, my you know instinct <laughs> instinct to go back and kill Lenin and see if that fixes things 
Uh, sadly, it wouldn't work because Wortham was made a Marxist by Theodore Adorno, and Adorno's Marxism, I'll bet, predates Lenin and does not immediately depend on Bolshevism. So you have to sort of uh, work around uh, Frederick Wortham in a, a number of different ways. And I guess the way that I would solve the problem depends on what comic book I'm solving the problem in, right? So if I'm solving the problem of Frederick Wortham in a Classics Illustrated comic book, the thing that you do is you go back to the Senate subcommittee on uh, juvenile delinquency that is chaired by uh, Estes Kefauver, who wants to be president and therefore wants to whip up a moral panic because that is how you get uh, ink in 19... 52 and, uh, 1954 rather, and every single year before or since. Um, and so therefore, he's, uh, whipping up this moral panic and he's called Frederick Wortham to testify. And then the only comics publisher who is agreeing to come and testify, uh, at the panel is Bill Gaines, the publisher of EC. And Bill Gaines was a school teacher. He's a gifted user of rhetoric. He's, um, uh, fairly glib, light on his feet. There's a terrific ad that he wrote. Um, that either happened right before or right after the, the hearing in which he basically painted uh, Frederick Wortham as a communist and uh, questioned why the Senate was uh, listening to avowed communists like Frederick Wortham uh, that shows that he had a certain rhetorical style as well as various satirical gifts that made him such a great comics publisher. But the trouble, of course, is that on the afternoon of the hearing, he was coming off of a benzodrine high. He'd been taking benzodrine uh, in theory, to lose weight, but also because in 1954, people took benzodrine as sort of a, a concentration uh, aid. Because, hey, benzodrine. Because, hey, it's benzodrine. Why wouldn't you? It was a simpler, better time in many ways. But the uh, well, the trouble was that they postponed his testimony so that his testimony comes while he's crashing on benzodrine. And a lot of the sort of glib, ridiculous answers that he gives, such as when uh, the senator says, do you think that this severed head on the cover of the comic book is in good taste? And, and Gaines says, uh, it's in pretty good taste. Uh, it could have been held much higher. And, <laughs> and, and, and things like this. Yes, well, G Gaines makes the classic nerd culture mistake of trying to argue with the Senate committee yeah. and trying to argue uh, rings around them and be a smart ass and to prove that they are ridiculous. Right. In, in the um, uh, Classics Illustrated world, however, you can go back, you can show him footage of uh, Kefauver tearing apart Frank Costello uh, in the previous hearings about organized crime in 1952. And, uh, you can say, look, if he does this to a mobster, maybe lay off the Benzedrine, and obviously using my various uh, uh, gifts for beverages, uh, uh, delight, I can probably get uh, gains distracted in, you know, safe, uh, helpful, but depressive drugs uh, of alcohol before the hearing so that he shows up uh, caffeinated but not benzodrine. Yes, I, I suspected that give Bill Gaines some media training was part of going to be part of your strategy. Yes. So that that would be that would be the classics uh, the classic comics version because then he gives his Mr. Smith goes to Washington oration and the Senate all recoils and uh, and everyone says why we would never listen to that uh, filthy uh, communist Frederick Wortham you've shown us the light Bill Gaines. So in in Classics Illustrated that's how it works. Now if it's an EC Comics, uh, what you do is you go back to when uh, Bill, uh, when Frederick Wortham is the uh, psychiatrist who is attempting to get Albert Fish, the notorious murderer and cannibal, uh, off on a, on a plea of insanity, and he's interviewing Albert Fish in the New York prison system. And what you do, of course, there is, uh, using my time uh, machine to subtly uh, sabotage the manacles holding Albert Fish to the wall and plant a bucket of uh, pineapple chili marinade over the door <laughs> so that when Wortham walks in in 1935, the bucket comes down. He's delicious. Albert Fish can't resist uh, the opportunity and devours him alive, no doubt with a great deal of gasp choke uh, being done in a Letra set uh, as, the, uh, as the final grotesque injury to the eye panel occurs. And, and that's how you would take care of it if it was an EC comic. But uh, in, if we're trying to do things in more my, uh, my trademark style in my own comic, I think that the way to do it is to get Estes Kefauver the 1952 nomination for the presidency uh, for the Democratic Party at the convention. Estes Kefauver goes in. He's won the vast majority of the primaries. He has more votes on the first ballot than every other competitor. Uh, at the convention, but 
The trouble is that his organized crime hearings have angered a lot of the party bosses because he's pointed out that these organized criminals are basically providing votes for the Democratic Party machines in the big cities, which is true. And so they would rather have someone that is not Estes Kefauver, but they are stuck because there's not an acceptable candidate that the rest of the convention will go for until, since the convention is being held in Chicago, Governor Adlai Stevenson shows up and gives apparently a real witty... Uh, uh, acclaimed charismatic barn burner of a, of a welcome speech that causes the delegates to agree to go with Adlai Stevenson on the third ballot, and therefore Estes Kefauver gets bounced, which is why he's in 1954 looking for a new moral panic to whip up, why he's looking for this cause, celeb, that will drive him back onto the front pages in time for a run in 1956. But if he's the nominee in 1952, if, say, someone has gotten to Adlai Stevenson before uh, the convention with perhaps a cocktail of Benzedrine and delicious um, uh, 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 Tom Collins's, then Adlai Stevenson is the guy who gives the rambling, disjointed speech, and the party bosses are stuck, will they or nil they, with Estes Kefauver. And the best uh, part of it all is, it doesn't matter who the Democrats nominate in 1952, because the Republican nominee is Dwight Eisenhower, and he will win anyway. So it minimizes the, um, uh, the, the degree of other time shifts and takes Kefauver neatly out of the picture as a whipper-up of moral panics. And, and speaking of moral panics, if anyone wants to find a really great book on this particular moral panic, that would be The Ten-Cent Plague by uh, David Haidu, that's H-A-J-D-U, uh, which covers the whole uh, history of the Comics Code Authority and gives a really great history of the comics industry because he is not a comics guy. Uh, he's a, a journalist and uh cultural historian, and so he covers not only the superheroes and horror comics that uh, we of the nerd fraternity still maintain an interest in, but all of the other different genres of comics that were also sort of collateral damage in the uh, formation of the Comics Book Code Authority, and reveals the extent to which um, almost all genres of comics were incredibly subversive for their time, because there weren't that those layers of corporate control over the cartoonists making them. And so, for example, uh, the pre-1952 romance comics are full of uh, sort of crazy, subversive, pre-feminist feminism. Uh, and then after the Comics Book Code Authority comes in, everybody slams the brakes on any sort of outsider culture being expressed through comics. And then you get the much straighter-laced, corny romance comics that you may remember uh, flipping through and ignoring on your way to the uh, Silver Age Marvels in the uh, back bins of your comic book store. Speaking of great uh, histories of the comic book industry, there's a guy, I think it's Gerard Jones wrote a book that was the history of um, uh, the comic book industry called Men of Tomorrow, which is also really, really good and specifically talks uh, geeks, gangsters, and the birth of the comic book talking about the degree to which the guys who were running the comic books publishing companies were all sort of skeevy uh, pornographers and, to one degree or another, mobbed up, and that that was another reason that they had a lot of real concerns about Estes Kefauver uh, running these, uh, these hearings, because obviously he was a guy who had done the research and knew a lot of their mob ties, and it's why, for example, DC caved early and wanted no part of it, because their publisher had been basically... Um, uh, involved in all kinds of rackets in New York City and didn't want any part of a Kefauver investigation to come down and mess with his highly profitable Superman franchise. Uh, but the real sort of reason to ding uh, Wortham is not just the sloppy research, is not just the Marxism, but there's also the fact that he dares to call Superman a fascist. That he says that Superman might as well have the SS on his chest as the S. And to say that about, you know, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster is, um, it, it's beyond offensive. And to say that, you know, someone like Jack Kirby or Jack Cole, who were, you know, anti-Hitler before anyone else was anti-Hitler. Kirby, obviously, he serves in the war. Um, these guys are all, uh, you know, uh, generally left-wing, but certainly uh, socially active Jews. Uh, from the from the inner city, from the kinds of people that Wortham claims that he thinks he's helping, and to go uh, to turn around and 
on no basis whatsoever to accuse them of abetting fascism. It's, it's the worst kind of character assassination. And so when people say, you know, and there's been, you know, a, a sort of a revisionist biography of Wortham and talks about how his research was used in Brown v. Board of Education and blah, 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 and how he was, you know, instrumental in, in mental health research for, for psychopaths and all these other things that he may or may not have done. It, it just, it, it, it's just beyond the pale. The guy is a sloppy researcher. He's he's a slanderer. He's an elitist, and he's the worst kind of person. And frankly, I would rather have a hundred injury to the eye comics rather than anything that Wortham wrote, even his theoretically scientific work, which I will point out was also reviewed by uh, 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 other medical authorities and said that it was sloppy and ill-researched. So it wouldn't surprise me if his brief for Brown v. Board, for which he gets such a giant pass was also um, uh, fairly crocked social science research. Well, ideologically, it's a really weird moral panic because it is one that is, as I think I've said in the past, you know, look out for alliances between cultural conservatives and crusading liberals because you know you're in trouble then. And in this case, it was an attack uh, by the left of center on a body of outsider artistic work that was largely, though not exclusively, of a subversive uh, sort of uh, left content, uh, with the big exception being the crime comics, which are extremely right-wing, as you would expect them to be. Um, and uh, so it's the uh, the uptight left attacking the counterculture left. Yeah, before there was a counterculture, even. I mean, back when it was all just popular, back back even before they'd drawn the lowbrow versus uh, highbrow versus middlebrow distinction, that it's basically, it's uh, the same... Uh, you know, Victorian urge to get those uh, people out of the streets and into the workhouse where they can contribute to society. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's certainly no more attractive when you've taken um, uh, evan evangelism out of the equation and you're doing it for no reason except that it makes you feel good. Right. And and it, I guess a better term would be proto-counterculture because, you know, the uh, kids who were reading EC comics and these weirdo romance comics and all of these, you know, crazy... Uh, expressions of outsider culture were then, you know, they were the, the Robert Crumbs and the Gilbert Sheltons, and they c came along to help drive the, the actual counterculture. And of course, there's a parallel story to be told uh, with the record industry, where uh, rock and roll and, and before it R&B music were uh, outsider uh, forms of music that people felt threatened by and were therefore... Uh, largely uh, uh, sold and promoted and produced by the mob and also went on to, after uh, various attempts to suppress it uh, with record burnings that paralleled the comic book burning ceremonies, uh, you know, went on to be, uh, become part of mainstream culture. And, and you see that again and again with uh, different genres of music uh, bring up a new moral panic. And, uh, and we've seen, uh, you know, we've had our own little version of that uh, with the anti-D&D backlash of the 80s and the periodic concerns about video game violence today. Yeah, and the notion that you wind up being able to co-opt fans of one branch of the art form to blackguard the other branch of the art form is an interesting one. Obviously, as a Chicagoan, um, I'm uh, steeped in the lore of the Death to Disco rally at Comiskey Park, which was not, you know... Um, uh, it was it was not uh you know uh symphony uh seat holders that were going out there burning disco records it was guys who liked uh hair metal and uh sort of old school uh, rock and roll that had been being uh demonized not you know 30 years ago by a different batch of moral panickers and the sort of the sort of the eternal cycle of line drawing and uh purging continues apace Yes, if, I, if I'd known during my disco sex phase that I was uh, unknowingly uh, furthering some sort of uh, covert anti-gay agenda, I don't know if I would have been mature enough to uh, reject <laughs> that at the time or not, but it's certainly right. what it looks like in, uh, in retrospect. Yeah, well, this was, this was the great joy of being fundamentally uncool, is that I was never called upon to take a, take a stand one way or the other vis-a-vis -vis disco. Um, yeah, it was definitely the battle of the uh, guys who like to sit down in their chairs and listen to classic rock while drinking beers, uh, discovering to their chagrin that other people might be having more fun than them. Yes, or different fun. Yes. Uh, and I guess our, our 
discussion of warring subcultures uh, brings us to an Ouroboros-like conclusion that connects us up to our first segment and therefore inspires us to exit because if Ouroboros ever stops chewing its own tail, it will bite you. So we will uh, exit from this time machine hut area and uh, think about our next podcast for next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music as always is by James Semple. Record us with your dashboard cams at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. Thank you.